Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. I am your host, Rohati. Thanks for being here. We are supported by all those who leave reviews and share this podcast. Season six in the Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast is all about deconstruction. The intros and outros are courtesy of Drew Brown, and you can find this album and many others. This one's entitled Hymns for the Architect. In this season, we center around deconstruction, and I invite different voices. And in this one, my friend Omar Reyes comes to us all the way from Edmonton. That's just north of where I am. We share that story, and Omar shares his story as a refugee who came to Canada and then growing up in Edmonton, growing up in the church, his experience in Pentecostalism, and then eventually walking away in a different way than most of us who have experienced deconstruction have done. This is a longer podcast, but I've kept it all together to keep the single thought together in, a, in one podcast episode. I think you're going to enjoy Omar's take and not only his story, but the way we center around not right thinking, as a lot of deconstruction is about right thinking or theology. We go to the emotional side and we talk about right relationships and what the impact of deconstruction is on those around us, like our kids or our families. So without further ado, let's jump in. Omar Reyes, welcome to the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast. You are our longest and most frequent listener. <laughs> so uh, we thought you... I'm just kidding. It could be true. No, I, I thought I won the sweepstakes. I, I've been sending the letters, the fan mail. It's uh, We're reading them. Uh, we appreciate I, them. I'm so glad. <laughs> we. Who's we? Uh, Omar, welcome. Thank you. We uh, come to all the listeners from the same province, but we're not in the same city. We are... Well, if you're, if you're driving like me, you could probably do it in under three hours. City limit to city limit. Calgary to Edmonton. I'm on Treaty 7 lands. Omar, what lands are you situated on? We are, uh, I am Treaty 6. Treaty 6, Ward Papasteo, in the capital region of Edmonton. Now, described as the Austin of Alberta. The Austin of Alberta? Uh, must be an Edmonton thing. Yeah, I think so. I think we just elevate ourselves above Calgarians in that way. The Austin. The Austin, you know. Okay. Uh, you weren't born in Edmonton. Uh, born in uh, San Salvador, El Salvador, Cent Central America, repping uh, the, the Salvatruchos. How old were you when you moved to, did you come straight to Edmonton? No, we, uh, at 85, moved to Toronto. Uh, I was a family of five. We were fleeing the Civil War, the, the early beginnings of the Civil War. And um, I remember the story of my dad telling us that um, we were originally going to be going to Australia. Hmm. And so we had, we were prepped ready. We had, my parents had sold their, uh, had, had, were in the process of selling the house. We moved in with our grandparents in Australia. And then within the last minute, uh, within a week or so, Australia closed their doors and uh, Canada opened theirs. Off we went, Toronto. And so we lived there for five years. 
Toronto five years and then yeah. then to Edmonton. Yeah, so we, in the six. we came to Canada in the same year. Did we? Yeah. Nice. I didn't go through Toronto, though. Where'd you go? Uh, straight to Calgary? Straight to Calgary, yeah. Because that's oh, okay. where mom, my mom's from Calgary, was born, mm. raised in Calgary. And so grandpa and grandma were here. And of course, so they sponsored my dad mm-hmm. and I. Well, I guess I had citizenship, but they sponsored my dad to come. So 85. Very cool. It's not a lot of, uh, yeah. like, I've been trying to pull up details about, I've been doing digging around my family, all three different Japanese, Chinese, and, and West Indian, and and all the stories connected to this. Like, uh, some pieces are, are missing, though. Uh, even in, like, mm. uh, my parents have no idea what month we came in 85. Like, mm-hmm. we, we're missing, like, this info from mm-hmm. 35 years ago, but I'm pulling out these pieces from, like, a century ago, and it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, man. It's funny how, like, yeah, uh, that idea of, like, um, dates and, and the specificity of, like, timelines, kind of, like, it, there's a mythology to it that I kind of like. Like, a part of me is, like, uh, like my, my dad was telling me that when my grandpa uh, was born, we don't actually know what, like, how old he is. Mm. He was, like, either 100 or 103. Mm. <laughs> You know, it was like, we just, they just didn't do mm-hmm. that back then. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that mystery is kind of, so then, mm-hmm. yeah. That's like uh, my grandmother, even though she was born in Canada as well, we didn't find out until maybe she was 70, in her 70s, that we had the wrong birthday. We were just lo- <laughs> looking at her, she might, probably had a birth certificate, but looking at it, it's like, oh, like grandma's born on a different day. It's like the 11th that's not the 10th, or whichever it is. So you had a family, you were a family of five? But, but now a family of seven. We have, t- have two siblings who were born here ah, okay. in Canada. Okay. So you can, tell by the, you can tell by the names. Uh-huh. Omar, Jose, Katia, Chris, and Johnny. Johnny, yeah. <laughs> Do they, uh, what are the middle names? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know if they even have middle names. We have full three names, all of us, and then... Oh no, Johnny does. John, Johnny Isai Reyes, and then Christopher Reyes. He has no middle That's name. That's it, Chris. <laughs> That's it. Then the rest, the rest of us, we all have three names. <laughs> what are the what are the what that does to identity? <laughs> poor Chris. I know. I mean, <laughs> I know. Poor Chris. So coming from El Salvador, what did life life look like? Because you're you're coming as refugee. Yeah. No. I. I. The only English I knew was a song. Uh, was good morning teacher i didn't know what i was singing but i knew the lyrics i mean a version of the lyrics yeah. I, I i wasn't exactly the lyrics but that's um yeah we didn't i had i think i had like i essentially did kindergarten in el salvador and i had learned started to learn to read in spanish um but it's funny because we were part my parents were part of this new age religion hmm. in el salvador okay Okay. They're, they're called the Gnostic Christian movement. That's specific. Yeah. It's very specific. It's very, and it's very, um, it, it, the founder is from Mexico. So it's a very like Latino based, I won't call it a cult, but it, they pretty much borrow from every religion mm. and 
created this sort of, you know, community. So, but culturally, we were Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. So we, I was baptized Roman Catholic. Uh, my parents maybe went to mass once a year, mm-hmm. but they practiced this where we did, you know, meditation, mm-hmm. astral projection. Uh, it, it, it's crazy. It, like I go back to, I'm like, what were we involved? And then, and it was through those connections, the very first friends that we made here in Toronto were part of that group, of that religious group. So I participated as a kid. I was really, like, my dad was one of the teachers. And so I would go to some of these, like, rituals that they would do. And in practices, there would be meditation practices, like just meditations. There'd be a candle in the middle, and it'd be an hour, and we'd be staring at a candle. And I'd be the only kid (laughs) staring at a candle. And, I mean, now that sounds so... Wow, like that sounds so therapeutic and soothing. But back then it was like a struggle, obviously, for a kid. But it was my, it was both because of connection to my dad, but also I was just fascinated with like the divine, the spiritual, wanting to like know God and, and, and things like that. So it wasn't probably until 10 years later living in Canada where my mom became a Christian. Mm. And then my dad became a Christian and all that energy that was part of that was now, you know, transformed into all of the energy investment into the local church that we were involved in. I, I think religion, spirituality has just always been a part of, at least our family, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just continually. So you then, to stick with the spirituality side, you, uh, your mom became a Christian. What mm-hmm. tradition did that draw your family into? Uh, so we were so we were involved with a Pentecostal Hispanic churches mm. uh, here in the city. No, we're and in Edmonton so, now. Yeah, back now here we're in Edmonton. Yeah. It would be services Saturday mm-hmm. in the evening, Sunday in the morning. Tuesday would be the men's group, men uh, women's group, and then the youth had their thing. And then Friday was youth group. So it'd be a Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, Four days. Sunday. Four days. That's everything. That's like, that's the time you ought to spend. That they must become family. You get in, and then you also can't yeah. get out. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, and and Four days. I think that wow. that was the thing. It, it, the services were two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. Um, then once a month, we would do what's called a vigilia, and a vigilia, a vigil, was from seven p.m. till maybe five in the morning so we'd end and then there'd be sing like singing it'd be singing worship five in the morning or like on a friday night there'd be a preaching hold on then there we but we'd have a meal in between there there's no way we're not eating and feasting at three in the morning so it would it'd, it'd be like or midnight no we'd eat at midnight and then we'd kind of yeah. end off um two or actually no two or three in the morning something like that and so that was once a month and then <laughs> Okay, I feel like I'm unloading here, but um, then we started getting up what was called matutinos. And a matutino was, we would get up um, in the morning to pray for one hour. So maybe, so it would be like 4 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. And we would either meet at someone's house or at the church. And that would be like this small group of people. And I was there, man. I like, 
everything that the church did, I was, it, I was, I was a teenager, and I was, I was loving it. Hmm. It was like community. They were my friends, and they were my family. Like there was, it was kind of like a blurred line. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us actually lived in a in a co op. Mm-hmm. So it was like a you know town townhouses yeah, yeah. and <laughs> I just laugh because like <laughs> I I'm hearing this and like so many white gent- gentrifiers are trying to reclaim things like that, <laughs> but it's like yeah, yeah dude, hear- this was for our survival. Yeah. We, we, that wasn't a luxury. We did that because <laughs> yeah, we pooled our money and because of that we were able to you know afford a rent and afford we had a satellite dish. And we had two channels, two Spanish channels. One was for the soap opera. Yeah. Like we'd, we'd watch uh, Univision, which would have a lot of the, um, you know, telenovelas and everything. And then we had the Christian channel. We had TBN. And oh, man. what? And so, it was, it, yeah, it, hilarious. <laughs> if you're not the, at service, you're watching TBN. We're watching, <laughs> we're watching TBN, literally. Yes. The golden age of... Of my faith. Why did you love it? You know, I, I, I was very, I felt like I was a very guilt, two things, guilt driven. Hmm. Just, I just felt I, I wasn't doing enough. And, and it was, it was, the, it was both the love and guilt. Hmm. If that makes sense. It's like, hmm. it's like, I want to impress the person I love. Hmm. And, and I never felt that that was unhealthy. I never felt, you know, the imbalance of that. It just felt this is what we did, mm. and and the ch- church would obviously like there would be a lot of fear which would contribute to the guilt, and then when I would do things and be like no I love this I love this I love you God and this is what I do for you and um, I I distinctly remember I had made this decision that I was going to wear a tie and a vest to all of this all, all of the weekend services as my devotion, and so I bought. Like, I mean, I look at pictures now and it's funny to me, but that, that was, that was one of the small things that was like, this is what I'm doing. And I would fast once a week. And that was weird when you had food studies. Ugh, hmm. that was the worst. You, Great you're a teenager? Studies. I'm a teenager. Yeah. I'm starving. Yeah. Uh. And I'd be cooking something. I'd be like, nope, today's fasting day. And so I take my, everyone's eating their food. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to pack it up here. I'm just going to put it in my bag. And, uh, and yeah, in a weird way, kind of that, that martyr complex felt really good. Hmm. You guys don't know I'm doing this for God. Hmm. Maybe they'll follow me too. <laughs> yeah. You, you will love God like I do. Putting away the pretzel, homemade pretzel. <laughs> <laughs> you became a minister at some point didn't you or did you go to before that did you go to some form of uh bible college bible school whatever the pentecostal version of that is of course (laughs) of course i did of course Uh i was going to be an evangelist okay okay when did you get that uh i'm using air quotes call oh my god like i was i for sure for sure i was 15 grade 10 Mm. i knew and then grade 11 i knew benny hinn oh huge benny hinn fan yeah Yeah. oh man i um and so i knew i i don't i wasn't gonna be a pastor i thought Mm. pastors were like no like it was it was the evangelists that were Mm. and there was a a really famous one uh, from puerto rico called guille avila and so he would hold TV shows and he, he would, he'd be one of the ones that would do like the, 
you know, the stadiums, um, healings. Mm. He, his story was fascinating. He was a former bodybuilder who became an evangelist and just a really humble guy, though, really humble. Um, and so just all these, um, you know, Central American preachers, revivalists, that, that's what I connected with. And so grade 12 came along and I, um, there, there wasn't a school for evangelists. <laughs> um, but but there, was a, there was a Pentecostal Bible college in my city and um, that's where I enrolled. And I'm like, this is the place. So I, I ended up getting a degree in theology there. Oh, in truthology, and, good for you. Yeah, yeah. And at the end, I, I realized, I'm like, I actually want to be a pastor. My personality is much more geared mm -hmm. to a pastor. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not splashy like, you know, a Benny Hinn. Um, and so, yeah, and then I, from there, I just, and at the time, too, like, I, I was lead, helping lead the youth group in my church as a teenager, and, and the pastor let me preach, mm -hmm. like, on a, on a Sunday morning, Saturday evening, to the adults, um, which was Blew your mind. huge. Yeah, like, can you imagine a 16-year-old being given, a 16-year-old being the, given the opportunity to preach to the entire congreg congregation of, like, you know, at the time, I think we were around maybe 150, 150 adults, I, I mean, at the time, I didn't think of it, but now I'm like, I would never do that. Like, what, what's a 16-year-old guy? <laughs> but I was so, I, I, I was just so zealous, so um, passionate about a very specific way of, of, uh, of communicating and, 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 and teaching. And so the irony of it is when I finally graduated with my degree in theology, I took a year off because I was like, I'm not sure I want to do this hmm. for a job. And I, I felt a little burnt out, hmm. um, you know, and so I moved to Calgary. Oh. And so I, I lived in Calgary for almost two years. I worked for a BMO, direct banking, oh, okay. back when telebanking was a big thing. I moved in with a friend and I was like, this is my year. This is my time of exploring. Hmm. <laughs> And so, um, and I'm like, I'm never going back. I'm done. I'm just going to do something else. And then um, I missed it. I missed it. And I, it took, I, I went to El Salvador. I went, I went on a trip to El Salvador and I visited my grandma. Hmm. And she was, she was a woman of faith and she was, my abuelito was amazing. And, and, and same with my, my grandpa and my, my abuelito. And I went to her church and this was a turning point because it's this little church, Pentecostal church. And this lady just came to me at the end of the service and she said, all she said to me, literally, she was, you are not on the path. You just need to get back on the path. And I'm like, well, <laughs> and I, and it's like, I knew what she meant when she said that. Mm. It was like, she had no clue that I had been thinking about going back into like youth ministry or working at a church. She had no, no clue. And I'd been wrestling with that. And when she said that, I, it just sort of was like, okay, this is, this is from God. I, mm. I need to get back onto the path. And it not, you know, like it was for me, like my path for me, that the path that God had for me. And so um, a church that I had interned had a position open I interviewed and I got it. And so then I moved back to Edmonton and was a youth pastor for almost, yeah, five years. 
and then and then I became an associate pastor at a downtown church as well. So I I worked like as a yeah professional pastor for ten years. Ten years. Oh, so you um, did oh five first uh, as a youth pastor, and then yeah five as an associate pastor at a different. Did church. you have a lot of connection with with your abuelita? She did. You know what? Um, when my grandfather passed away, she ended up um, living with us for a while. She moved mm. with us here uh, in Edmonton, and because that trip was just a, as you tell the story, sounds like this. It it was a catalyst to some level of formation. It was, and I and I and I treasure it. I hold it dear, and and it it did lead to a whole bunch of different things in my life, but. Th- the 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 humility of this like it, it struck me how you know how here we you want to reduce the obstacles to get to church so people can go to church because it because it's like there's a million other things to do mm-hmm. but in, in for my grandma I saw all the obstacles she like it was hard like mm-hmm. people would drive people from the church would pick my grandma up. And, and and it would be like, or sometimes she'd take the bus and it's far, it wasn't close by, but it was like, there was no way she was missing it. Mm. And it was this community. And it was, I, I just remember seeing church through her eyes and how loved she was and how respected she was um, among this community. And, and, and it, yeah, I, I, I won't forget it. You were in the machine that was, Everything consumer evangelical culture cares or Pentecostal. I mean, I, I, I end up working at a non denominational church for these past, and then, yes, okay. then yeah, it was a Pentecostal, yeah, yeah, then the last five years, yeah, P, uh, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada P- Church, a PAOC. Yeah. So, uh, so predominantly white then. Five years there. So, this is a series on deconstruction. When did the wheels start to fall off? It's interesting. I, I think I, I you know, I wanna say I've always have been deconstructing in terms of I've always wanted to find the true thing, the true thing to love, the the, the thing mm. to hold on to mm. and letting go of, of the other things. And so um I f- one of the pivotal things I is I had a friend, I was working at, at the church, associate you know, pastor in he asked me, you know, what books I, I was reading. And at the time, I was, I was part of huge into the emergent conversation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So I had read Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, uh, Doug Paget. I, I was like, and these are the books I'm reading. And, mm-hmm. and, and these guys were churning out books like so oh, many. Yeah. Like I read the trilogy, you know, A New Kind of Christian. Yeah, yeah. Um, great books. So I, you know, I don't, while I was reading that, I don't, a part of me is like, I've always been questioning and I love the conversation. Um, but this particular day he asked, so what are you reading? And I said, I told him, I quoted, and he's like, how come you're only reading white guys? Hmm. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? What? He's like, have you read any, any Latino theologians? Is this a white and guy like, talking to you? Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and uh, uh, shout out to uh, Dan Lowe. And so he, he asked me, he's like, why, like, have you, I'm like, what do you mean? What theologians? <laughs> what, you know, I don't like, yeah. I, I mean, I know the evangelists. And then he went and grabbed from the shelf, this book called Mestizo Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it's all these theologians, all like, 
Latino, like Latinx theologians and gave it to me. He's like, here, take this, read this. He's like, you need to be reading other than that. And I, I do credit that that was another pivotal conversation in terms of, I thought that I was sort of on like the, the, that, you know, the quote cutting edge of theology, hmm. a progressive thought hmm. Hmm. thinking this is it. In, this, in this your is search for truth. This is, yeah. Yes, yeah. this is the, these are, they're asking really good <laughs> yeah, questions. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, what, but why are they all like, it's almost, yeah, it was this white males. I'm like, everything was dominated oh. by white males. <laughs> you could have been on the conservative yeah. side. It was dominated by white males, church planning side. The missional church was emerging off of all that of emerging. Yeah, I have, sure. I have they, shelves of these books. I, Where yeah, are they I went now? To the missional, Same place. I, <laughs> And it's funny because it was like, I started, I've read that book and I'm like, oh my God, like this. And, and, and this is the worst part of it to me was I, I was from like Oscar Romero, mm-hmm. which is the bishop assassinated while, you know, holding mass um, and a priest that really advocated for the poor and was really a thorn in the, in the flesh of the government and, and and the rich so much so he was he was martyred yeah he was assassinated and and then it was like because we were raised pentecostal because i was raised pentecostal we everything to do with catholicism we just you just it's the worst it's like it's that is not of god Mm -hmm. you know like this fundamentalist idea Mm -hmm. and so i started I started reading further and learning more and, and then understanding even the history of Canada and the colonization and, and the wisdom that existed before the colonizers arrived and the spirituality and depth. And, and I'm like, this is not what the church did does not conducive to who Jesus is. And the Jesus that like in my heart of hearts, no, the, the Jesus that would like, that's when it started, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you described, the wheel started coming off. And I started looking at things a different way and asking questions that weren't really accepted or um, in my role, trying to introduce things in the converse, trying to decenter um, certain voices or certain theologies to sort of, you know, like I, I distinctly remember one time, one of my goals was I want to, I want to be able to preach in such a way where it's actually our community is preaching to each other. So I would, I, I would get people from different cultures, like the people that I knew, and 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 we would create a sermon together, mm-hmm. and they would communicate it together. Mm-hmm. And my idea was, I, I'm decentering myself. Mm-hmm. I, I we need other voices. Mm-hmm. And I remember the lead pastor at the time said to me, Omar, we want to hear your voice. I want to hear what's in your heart. Mm-hmm. And and I knew he he's trying to be kind about it and sort of like encouraging and and but i it just it it didn't jive at all with his thinking mm-hmm. this idea that uh, that mm-hmm. other voices could preach that there could be a diversity and and that that's actually good mm-hmm. and that it's a form of mm-hmm. spiritual formation for them and instead i got pushed back and I, I got to do it once and then after that it was like like that's not really encouraged like you are when you preach you're the one we want to hear and I just it felt hmm. gross, right? Like I just was like, this is so contrary to 
Um, and so little by little, there were just a whole bunch of things, little things that I just wanted us to move forward in, in addressing as a con- congregation. We had First Nations, you know, we had Indigenous people in our community wanting to take things beyond tokenism. But it, at the end of the day, it felt like it was just me pulling this. So it was a staff of, I think, five or six of us. And it was... Omar, you're like, you're the ethnic guy. You're now the, ju- you know, the justice, social justice. You, you do this. <laughs> you're brown enough to be the social justice guy. Yeah, you're, you're the guy. And, and it was like, yeah. And so there was a whole bunch of different things that at the end led to this thing that, uh, and, and in the back of my head at, at the time too, I'm like, I'm getting paid to do a work. Like I wanted, I, I, I want to do social work. I had started to make friends that were social workers in the city um, and I remember there was this family that had been evicted and I helped them connect to a landlord and got them housing as a pastor. And I remember feeling, I love this. This is so cool. Is this an actual job? That along with being able to sit with like, a, we did a 12-step recovery program in conjunction with another uh, ministry. And I got to sit around um, with men and women that had, you know, struggled with different addictions and, and had, um, you know, gotten out of jail, were in halfway houses, were trying to get back, you know, uh, get back on track and, and, and deal with things. And I remember the honesty and the vulnerability of that group and being like, I have not experienced this in any church. Like this whole, the rawness of people struggling with real, like hard, uh, traumatic generational things and really trying to um, and calling for God and and sometimes them failing but showing up the next time and I'm like this is this is beautiful this is where God is <laughs> and 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 when I started understanding even um, about liberation theology and, and Gustavo and and this voice that God you know it's not that it's not that they understand God better it's that they give us a picture of what God, uh, what God is like, and what who God is nearest to. And I remember describing mm. to a friend that I feel safe, like I feel like I'm close to God when people are this honestly, like this honest about their brokenness. Mm. Yes, yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and so then, and I was like, I want to, I want to work. This is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. And the irony was, church wasn't that. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, church yeah. was pretense. Church was uh-huh. sanitized. You no, know, the yeah. the stage, and, and it doesn't matter how authentic you think you're being. Mm-hmm. The minute you elevate the stage as the fulcrum of your faith expression, it will always be about um, a sterile, well put together uh, message, and it's going to be about communicating a message rather than just being Mm. you know Mm. and so i I eventually after several conversations was like i i can't i can't do this like i i've got to i i have to resign and it was the one of the hardest and easiest things i had done Mm. because i remember a week after i had left i started doing lawn care i was mowing lawns that's the only job Ro, I don't know if I could spend a whole thing on talking about transitioning from pastoral work out into other things. I could spend a whole hour talking about the failures and everything I learned Hmm. 
because I thought, I literally thought as an associate pastor of a church of over 300 mm. and all the programs I ran and, and all the experience, all the leadership things I had, you know, uh, accomplished and, and experienced that the world would hire me. <laughs> That there would be a million jobs lined up for me. <laughs> you can sling coffee. I started mowing lawns. And don't get me wrong, I love preaching and yeah. I love that. But I'm like, this feels more fulfilling mm. than wow. what I was doing as a pastor. And that's when I, like, that's when I, and, I mean, the pay was less. Everything was, was really hard. But I remember telling my wife and being like, I know it doesn't seem like it, but I made the right decision. Mm -hmm. As I'm coming home all, you know, <laughs> with brass all over my face and sweaty and yeah. Well, you encountered God and God was on the margins. Was it like the scales falling from your eyes sort of moment? It was like when you, if you reread the Gospels again, because if you reread them and you, and you understand that Jesus literally went to those who were the most disempowered, the actual villains, the the misunderstood, the ones with like it changes it changes how um, what I would want what I wanted to prioritize and what I wanted to be a part of. So it was like, and I I, distinct, I distinctly remember um, talking to my friend and saying, I don't know how I'm going to get to this place of um, of of shedding the guilt that I had for what seemed like I was not fulfilling my destiny because I had, you know, I'd gone to, I had, I had spent so much time in the local church that I was so scared of thinking that a could, could ministry happen outside of the church, mm. you know, like could, could, could real impact happen outside of, of the local church. You were church. inside so long, and you lacked so that long. perspective. And you thought, yeah. and we thought that the, you know, that they're in their churches and, and, and so we're reaching out and we're doing these things. And, and it's mm. like, meanwhile, the minute I step, you step into different parts of our cities and you go to quote unquote, you know, the bad side of the city, you have to, why, why are they bad? What, what are we seeing here? Where is God in these places? God is here. And at the granular level, at the human level, a lot of these individuals, if you talk to them, the, the, their stories of like redemption and pain and trauma and and tragedy and and I'm like God, you, I've got to believe that you're here and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna find you. And so I I remember I did I worked for several inner city agencies. The simplicity of helping people fill out applications for income support because they they're not able to read or or they don't have and, and thinking. I'm like, this is the work of God. Why isn't the church here? Why aren't we doing more of this? I remember thinking at the time you thought, you know, salvation was what you got. Like, if you saved someone, it's a notch on your belt. You know, you're saving God. Or if they came to you know. service for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was sort of a metric. But in this scenario, I'm like, it's it's this dignity, it's this shared experience, it's a conversation. It's two equals, if that makes sense. I'm not saving anyone. And the biggest lesson I learned was when I was working at the church. You, oh, I always came from a position of I 
no more. I'm closer to God than you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to help. Yeah, right. It's gross. always this this weird imbalance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I worked at the agency, when I worked among um, uh, with an inner city, that's that dynamic doesn't work. That's not. We are equals. Like we we together. We've got to, and you've got to. I've got to like come, like get off my high horse. I'm not going to save you, uh, and I'm not going mm-hmm. like my mm-hmm. only, you know. And, and, and so that was hard for me because I think the first, it was like, I'm going to help. I'm going to do these, yeah. you know, I'm going to do all these You're things. You're savior. You're the brown no. savior. You're practically I'm brown Jesus. Brown. Well, you know, that I was going to get that tattooed, but uh, it's Jesus, by the oh. way. <laughs> um, My bad. Uh, so then, uh, but then it was like, no, this is not, that's not how this rolls. This is, I have to unlearn all of this. I, I need to be in solidarity. I need to share conversation. Hmm. I need to, and I need to share about my life and you with like, and just the, the equality just humbled me. It exposed how much pride I had, mm-hmm. how much, mm-hmm. you know, how much, what I, how elevated I thought of myself and hierarchical, patriarchal, colonial. It's like we, we adopt all of those things. We adopt. And, and then you add that Christian supremacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This idea that if, if only you were Christian, <laughs> That's what's missing. If only you were a Christian, then oh, maybe yeah, you, Jesus. Would, you wouldn't struggle with addiction. Mm. If maybe you were a Christian, then maybe you wouldn't be so poor. If maybe you're, and it's like, holy, like, I, like that's a sermon. You feel God drew you out of your pastoral ministry. You know what? I I think God drew me in, drew me into a pastoral a pastoral life, like a pastoral way of being. If that makes mm-hmm, sense, mm-hmm. It, it, with a healthy like I, I actually don't think it was an out. It was more, it was more in because now it's not I everything like it's not like whatever pastoral work I do. There's no payment. I'm not on staff. I'm not. It it really comes from a level of heart. And so I think one of the one of the biggest changes I think for me is. I am not the central person in people's stories. Do you know when you're a pastor and you tell the stories on the stage, you're always sort of in the middle of the story. You always share the part, the pivotal part that you played. I don't have, I, I remember one of, one of my, uh, one of my managers saying the role that we do in social work, you want to do it in such a way that you don't leave a mark. You don't want individuals that are disempowered to look back and say, it's because of this guy or this person that I'm no longer in this position. Mm. You want to instead be weird? for them to look back and see themselves and say, look what I did. Mm. Look what me and my community did, me and my family. And, 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 and you leave as little footprints in the lives of individuals. And, and that is so much the opposite of pastoral. That's so the opposite of pastoral work, which is you come in and you announce i'm the pastor here's the bible here's what i'm going to do listen to what i say here's my prayer for you i'm going to lay my hands everything's so centered uh whereas social work is it's more about help it's more you're out you're you're on the outside you're kind of just helping people find their path and and kind of helping them lean into all of these things and it's it's a mind trip. it's it's shepherding so it is, in fact, sh- pastoral work. It, it, like in, 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 yes, in, 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 in that, in its truest form. In its truest form, you found 
your vocation. How long ago was this? I, I want to say nine years. I think it's nine years. We're, we're at the nine-year junction. A lot of times when people um, work their way out of evangelicalism, and, and so just now I've been looking at TikTok because I'm always late to the social game, and I know there's a lot of voices on TikTok um, around ex-evangelical and deconstruction. Deconstruction is getting hot now. It's funny that you bring up all those... Uh, books on Brian McLaren and Rob Bell, like that was when deconstruction was hot 20 years ago. We didn't call it deconstruction. Mm-hmm. It was emergent. I mean, emerging. Uh, Jacques Derrida, right? <laughs> yeah, Derrida. That's where, yeah. All the postmodernists. You know. Yeah. They, I mean, all these different aspects of challenging meta narratives and so forth. I mean, I, I remember being in the mix of all that, but now we have this different conversation and i think it's it's good in many ways surrounding deconstruction ex-evangelical but as i was navigating through the tiktok is is that is that correct the talk the talk i I don't know among the tiktok community we like to call it the tiki-taki so the tiki-taki i'm on there and i'm just like i've made mention of this on twitter but I was stunned because you see the videos. It's it's a sea of white people as far as the finger can scroll. And like, I honestly felt like I was in a Klan meeting and I'm just like going through all of the voices in this movement, which I think is a, a reflection of how much trauma is happening and how many people in white evangelicalism are working their way out. Um your story seems to be a little bit different in, in the sense that you didn't leave with some big blow-up. Uh, there was something incongruent with the faith that you understood and that of the God on the margins that you saw that didn't look like the God on the stage. And it brought you <clears throat> into a place of, of rediscovering or reclaiming. It, does that <clears throat> sound like an accurate portrayal of your... Of your mm-hmm. switch there nine years ago? I mean, I think if, if I'm going to talk to the white audience, I'm going to say a couple things. I'm going to say one of the biggest things, um, because this is what my friend did, my, my white friend. He essentially took all of everything that he, you know, everything that he's learned and said, and sort of amplified the voice of the marginal, marginalized theologians mm. to me, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, that was instrumental. The, it wasn't that he converted me or said, hey, have you heard of all of these concepts? It was, why are you reading them? And have you heard this? And then gave me literally the book, a book. While like they were instrumental to me, Brian McLaren, they, which I think ultimately they basically used, you know, gave us permission to say, hey, we can question these things. But you're right. I feel like what we're seeing is, I think that just speaks to the amount of how much uh, white supremacy, like, just permeates. Of course, it makes sense that the majority of ex-evangelical deconstruction conversations are white people. The majority of people, you know, that have platforms are also what like it, th- that makes sense, but I, I I want to believe that there are there are some that are turning that tide, and so for me, yeah, it's 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 changed. It's 
and we're seeing other voices now emerging. Like I think of, I love, I'm a big fan of Kat Armas and, and mm-hmm. like she literally, her first book, Abuelita Theology. I'm like, first of all, you named your first, like, are you the Jay Balvin of theology here? Because like, you're literally starting your book, your first book with a Spanish word. And, and, and abuelita is a term of endearment. It's mm-hmm. not just grandma theology. It's like, it's like Grammy theology. It's like this mm-hmm. really, you know. And so I think, I, I, I feel like those of us who have been on the margins, I, a part of me, I'm like, I don't really care to be a version of someone else, of, of my white counterpart, if that makes sense. Mm. <laughs> I, I just, I'm going to be, I'm going to be me. And I'm a mixture, right? In that, yes, I was born in El Salvador. And for a long time, Spanish was my first language. But I, things switched. And now Spanish is my second language and English is my first. And I married a Canadian woman and my kids are Canadian Salvadorian. Mm. And, and there's a whole bunch of us who are, uh, are a, a mixture, a mestizo, a mezcla, a mix. And, and yes, the challenge is to find our voice, but at the same time, it's also inherent within me to be like, I am already a mixture. Mm. Uh, my people are a mis- mixture of Spaniards and the indigenous communities, the Pipil people. And, and so like, that's part of my DNA and understanding that mm. I am not just one thing. Mm-hmm. I am not just one identity. I'm multiple identities. And for a long time, white supremacy would say, no, you have to be one. Um, but to kind of decolonize is to say, no, I'm this, but I'm that. And mm. also this. And, 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 and being like, that is awesome. There's tension in that for sure. Um, and so I don't feel guilty that I love, I love a lot of hip hop, but I also love reggaeton. I love cumbia, but I also love a lot. I love folk music. And so, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like I have to fit the stereotype. And, and while people may want to place, you know, once you know, oh, you're from El Salvador, or you probably love soccer, you, you love pupusas. And it's like, I love soccer, I love pupusas. Yes. <laughs> However, I also love Korean. Oh, I love my curry. You know, like, all those things. And if there's anything for me, I think part of it is also this emotional well-being, emotional wholeness that I think also has to kind of align itself with uh, deconstructing and finding a healthy emotional space for us, because a lot of the toxic theology has harmed us emotionally, has harmed us psychologically. And so Mm. how do we heal from that? Um, I, I think that's another conversation. I think that's a whole other journey. Well, that's it's tied. It's tied, I think, because just oh, sure. what you said in, in decolonizing, and that you're not just one thing. Like one of the things that I was thinking of as you were as you were sharing there is that the white thought leaders and even the contemporary ones around these hashtags, they can't draw you to the Jesus on the margins. And there is a when when you gave this beauty that is finding the multi ethnicity of your identity or the different inputs that make you whole. Uh, white what white supremacy does is that it calls you into a fake thing and and in, and in fact says give up the things mm-hmm. that make you unique for this mm-hmm. vanilla mm-hmm. whiteness. Mm-hmm give up all the pieces of and so what happens if if you adopt that 
and you discover that it's making you, at some point, making you less whole, it's challenging you. Uh, you, you realize it's actually drawing away from your, the fullness of your humanity, that it's harming you. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you develop that cognitive dissonance. Yes. And, and one, yeah. of the, one of the failures, I think, is a, to build off of what you were saying around deconstruction is that it's not just a solution found in a, in a new right way of thinking. Mm-hmm. It's not about no. fixing, uh, part of it is, but it's not only about fixing your theology, rather there's a holistic Mm-hmm. attempt here of reclamation, of, of reclaiming our whole humanity, which now peels back into your piece of, of looking for something that's more whole, looking for whole health mm-hmm. in the, and you used this term um, earlier, the emotional side of deconstruction. Why do you think that mm-hmm. is, like, what? W- maybe unpack pieces of that, of why it's important. I mean, we, we talked about the wholeness and, and health, but you allude to the value, You maybe it's accurate to say that it's the most important thing to you, rather than reading the right books or getting the right theology or reclaiming, you know, a decolonized theology, which comes, I'm sure, mm-hmm. uh, you're mm-hmm. chasing uh, the emotional aspects of deconstruction, Mm-hmm. Be- because when we talk about li- like for me the metaphor is it's liberation i feel liberation it speaks more and and when i think about um it, when you think of liberation you can have the shackles removed from you but if those shackles provided safety you might want to say i think i want those shackles back even though they're hurting me even though they're keeping mm-hmm. me from my potential I think I want it back, i.e., I'm not sure I can leave this church community. I know they're toxic. I know they're, you know, they're shaming me, and I know that they are, you know, homophobic. But, but <laughs> if I leave, if I leave, what what what's going to become? And then and then when you leave, you start feeling that discomfort. And I'm like, yeah, theology can become a, a way of hiding from the actual pain that we're feeling. Ooh, and I think one of the word. biggest, like, I think one of the biggest things for me was realizing, I mean, that was my journey. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. I loved theology books. I loved, and I, and I thought they were helping me, but they, they, they provided a fake way of, um, oh, a fake way of, dealing with it. It was like, I am now dealing with this. I am now attending to my, uh, as, as some of my Cree friends would say, the home fire of my life by reading these books. But really, it's more about like, what's the wound? What's the harm? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and part of it for me began by saying, this hurt me. I'm, I struggle with what this person said to me. Or this, and and this would come out in different ways for me, whether it was a blog post or whatever. And 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 one of the things I, I ended up doing that I had never done before actually was I went to a therapist. Mm. Um, I think my first year within social work uh, as a social worker, I it was like, holy sh! Like I don't have the emotional capacity to deal with all of this pain that I'm that I'm seeing and, and experiencing. And you'd think that working at a church would have prepared me, but it didn't because, 
it, it just didn't. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, and I remember talking to my therapist and I talked about my whole, like, you know, Christian upbringing. And it was like, she, she was so great. She was so great as I sort of, you know, opened myself up to this process. I, I started to realize the emotional part is actually one of the most vulnerable pieces of this whole deconstruction thing. Mm. And you can still be, you can still deconstruct while still holding, while still having those emotional patterns By holding as a the fundamentalist. Pain. Just you're holding yeah. pain. Of, of, of where we were at before. And I'm like, mm. so we, when we see that toxicity within these conversations yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that toxicity in uh, the congregations or people who come into congregations with that baggage. Well, it's yeah, and, and, that's, and it's like, there is room for that. Absolutely. But, but I'm like, but I think the divine, I think love calls us to be healed from that, to find healing. Mm, and, yes. um, and, 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 and I think from there, that's when I can, and, and maybe this is my evangelical upbringing, that's when I can be a blessing to others, really. Like, and that's when I can, in a healthy way, right? In a way that decenters me, in a way that isn't passive aggressive, in a way that isn't, you know, narcissistic or, you know, insecure, but a place where it's like, hey, if you, <laughs> I know who to argue with and who not to argue with. Or I know at this point that if you're not, if you disagree with me, I'm going to be okay. You know, like... <laughs> when we talk about holistic health, it's also a realization that the pathway of deconstruction unto liberation is one that's not an individual one. You, you don't travel that by yourself. That, in fact, you, you bring with you or you touch everyone around you, family, mm -hmm. spouse, kids, they, they come in along too. Tell us more about that idea. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's like this, this ecosystem, right? Mm. Where we're trees among all these other plants and we're connected. And so we're part of this forest, our family. And once, you know, when, when you are sharing sort of the same, um, you're, you know, same beliefs, similar values, you're, you're good. There's no conflict and, and you're fine. But, but what happens when you are deconstructing and you start questioning the very people that sort of provided shade for you as you were growing up, the very people that yeah. nurtured you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this is, this is such a painful thing for a lot of us. Um, and I, and I hear this a lot and, and it's not even tension anymore. It's really, it's like this unhealth, painful, tragic responses that we get from family members, from friends about our, how they perceive us, whether we're backsliding, whether we're, and, and, and I don't, I don't have answers. And I don't, I think it only just speaks to how communal we are. And, and I'm like, I keep thinking about that pain. Like I, I just, and I'm mm. grieving it for friends. I'm grieving it yeah. uh, for myself and, and that change. And I think it's important to talk about it. And I think it's, I think it's, it's helpful to say and honest to say, man, while I am deconstructing, it fucking sucks and hurts. 
that my family don't see me the same way, mm. that they see me as an outcast mm. and that they don't trust me mm. or that they think that I'm out to get them or that I'm trying to be impossible or that I'm, <laughs> yeah. you know, Are you lost? or worse, yeah. I'm going to hell yeah. and that they worry, mm. right? Or even <laughs> that sort of passive aggressive way of, 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 of leading us back. And, and it's like, as my one friend would say, I'm literally taking everything you've instilled in me in the values and I'm applying it to my faith and it doesn't hold up this faith that I've come like, it's like, you should be proud. Like I'm literally questioning like issues of integrity, issues of compassion, kindness. This is what Jesus has called us to. And this belief system is not that. And, um, but this this sort of division is um at the family level it is is painful and at the friends level the ending of friendships the ending of communities uh it's hard it's hard Hmm. we want to uh is there a duck quacking in your house what is that We, we want to end off with a little picture of just examples of what life and community looks like as we reclaim different ways of being. And so one of the things that we've attempted is, and COVID has given us this opportunity, or rather we have had to make the opportunity out of this global pandemic stage uh, Cypher Church has partnered with a small, just like us, mishmashy community called A Beautiful Table, um, which which you started, right? Mm-hmm. And together we've been doing just some shared online services, or they're really, they're, they're basically services, um, mm-hmm. and have now drawn the community together in different cities, uh, but drawing together, figuring out what it looks like to be community in different places, online, and all that jazz. That's one of the things that we've been testing. Um, And I don't know, I I feel like right now, at least it it has some sense to it. It has a little bit of uh, momentum behind it. What's been your sense of of reclaiming new ways? Like, why even bother with some of this stuff? It's a way. It's the way I see it. It is. There are so many ways that we've not explored. Mm. And and I, when when we came up with the name a beautiful table, that ah in front of you know a beautiful table mm. is very is a reminder to us that this is not the only table. There are other tables. There are other expressions of faith. There's others way, other ways to be community. And ours just happens to be at a table. And what makes it beautiful is, is us and what we bring to the table. And so Cypher Church coming in, yeah, we, we will do this. This is, this is one way um, that we're going to gather. And honestly, when we first started, I'm like, I, this is, I, I don't know how this is going to roll. Um, I don't know because I had a tent, like 
we've never a beautiful table has never read the bible that much if at all (laughs) and here we are reading large portions of scripture and and people are still coming every second sunday and we are we're following you know a liturgical calendar and i think what it is at this point is we we want we and i can't say i can't speak for everyone but from what i'm hearing whenever we gather the community is important but also the solidarity of we don't have it figured out and we're we and we're hurting but we want something hopeful um and and willing to try i think that's the thing is that people are willing to take a small risk because they've lost other things hmm. a lot of them are no longer connected to a church and so i i think like i i i, I hear um what's his name? Uh, dr miguel de la torre when he talks about uh, the despair of hopelessness, this idea that when you've lost everything else, you'll try, you'll keep going, because what have you got to lose? And so we're a bunch of people that are like, what do we really have to lose in gathering in front of our screens for an hour or so? You know, like, and and and, and so far, we're finding instead that it's, it's actually been nurturing something within us that mm-hmm, maybe has yeah. been slumbering for a while. Yes, yes. And and this this muscle that we had of, you know, wrestling with scripture and wrestling with questions among a community, because let's be real, a lot of us are internally, you know, processing so much. And this pandemic has pushed us towards even further isolation. Mm -hmm. But at the one opportunity to, to be able to ask a question or even listen to someone ask a question that we might not have courage to ask, and then for us to respond, I think there's there's something beautiful about that that's happening, and and to I, affirm, other than too. that, I yeah, and to aff- yeah, Not and to affirm, to respond, and to say, yeah, to affirm, just to say you also have that mm. question, or you also have that. Stuff. I hear like, you, yeah. and so, and so, it is for right now. This is where we're, at. And, and I'll be honest, like I'm like I don't know what will happen once we're at the endemic phase, and I don't know, but I'm not I'm not worried about that. If that makes sense, I I, I love what we're ha- what's happening now, and that's where I'm going to. That's that's what I'm going to inhabit. It seems to be. I know one of the things that I've switched over the past couple of years now is is just the notion you can build real community online. I never was never a proponent of online, and now one hundred percent. What I've seen is just beauty from it, and it. That's an easy switch. Um, it's easier because we have nothing left, right? But it, I have found that even in the few months that we have ventured into into this um, attempt together, um, is is twofold. One of them is that there is this uh, need. I'm not sure if "needs" the right word, but uh, or appetite. I'm not sure that's the right word either. Uh, of of people who are deconstructing have been in that journey for some time and they are stretching to reclaim something and to be in the midst of community that is reclaiming. They're not just talking about it. You're not just in still in the process of dismantling everything around you, but you're actually rebuilding pieces that is building something new. Yeah. And building something and Yeah. And it's, and it's scary and it's like, you know, you take a couple steps here and a couple steps. Cause I was talking to someone today and they were like, 
you know, I haven't really gone to a beautiful table. They, they hadn't gone to the in-person gatherings when we were meeting in person, but they joined via video mm-hmm. and have been consistently attending and a part of this community and love it. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that, that it's, it's opened that up for individuals who might, through different anxieties, for, for different reasons, not participate in in-person things and religious, quote, but will try something online. But I agree. There is there is a depth to it that I uh, didn't ever give it credit to um, before, you know. And I think I was one of those people that thought, you know, no, the church is embodied. It's only the, it's like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's also this too. Yeah, it can also be this Un- unquestionably. And and <laughs> one of the evidence of that is both the life that I think it, it that it's building. And I mean, I I am encouraged to, and I think this is different, in fact, because I've been in the mix, uh, not online, but I've been in the mix of other communities leading them, of those who are deconstructing. This one is very different in the sense that, uh, that the, I don't know, again, maturity is not the right word, but a maturation of where you are in the journey, I think, Mm -hmm. and and an ability to be vulnerable and Mm -hmm. um, honest with where you're at in your faith and to be affirmed in those things. Mm -hmm. This community is different in the sense that they are grasping uh, and 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 seeking some semblance of reclamation in the journey, mm-hmm. like that's different mm-hmm. than we're just sort of kicking the can down the road along this mm-hmm. you know phony deconstruction pathway. Mm-hmm. This is this feels like there's substance behind it, and and to me that's different. And the life that it is bringing, and here's here's the other piece on top of life, is that I didn't realize. Uh, the accessibility of online, and this is my ableism, of how mm-hmm. many disabled mm-hmm. folks mm-hmm. are connected mm-hmm. into it now. 100. 100. I, I, that's been one of those huge eye-opening things for me and, and the blinders that I had about that and thinking this should change how it must. churches all over. It must. It must. You, like, you can't just favor the able bodies. And you can't just use those voices to shape the culture and shape the vision mm-hmm. of churches. Mm-hmm. You're missing a treasure. You're missing like hugely important voices. And I and I and I was one of those pastors of you know like thinking, never thinking that way. Just thinking if you can get here, you're you're valued. And if you're not here, then well, that's your fault. How you need awful. to be at service. That's the. You need it, to come to the. <laughs> you know what? It and it brings us full circle, and now brings us back to the place where we encounter the God on the margins. That to center yeah. the voices on the margins is the exercise in encountering the God who is for the margins, not even for the margins, the God who is on the margins, to use James Cone. It is the disinherited Jesus that we draw mm-hmm. alongside. That's different. That's different. You got so, that in community? That is that is different. It intrinsically changes how you view your relationships, how you, how mm-hmm. you hold the tension, how you view others. It is, it's formative. And also, I think one of the biggest things, and, and, take it for whatever. But I think one of the biggest things is it also respects everyone's own 
theological, spiritual, like you do not have to be Christian to participate in our gatherings. You do not need to be, you know, heterosexual. You do not need to be a certain, there is so much space to be who you are and what you contribute is essential regardless yes we are centered you know as jesus jesus is sort of is the center yeah. and but it's different in that no like i i just and i love that it's, it's it's and i literally had a friend that was just texted me that said hey i have a friend that met you know they're leaving church can they come to a beautiful table to our gathering you know aside for what you're doing and then she's like and also i have people from my cohort can they be a participant in this activity and and it's like none of that saying hey like and I, I i take that as this thing of like oh wow like you would invite people that are not christian or whatever to this space as opposed to how i feel about people going to you know i i feel protective of people that want to go you know people that are deconstructing and are wanting uh traditional church because i have a lot of those conversations too right they don't they don't fit within a beautiful table site for online they want to go to a church omar where can i go it's like, and I want this, and, this, and I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel protective in that way, if that makes sense. Of like, I don't want to just send you anywhere, but here, I'm going to give you some recom- some suggestions. And I, I've, sent, I've asked people on Facebook to send me churches that are, you know. Um, Any last words you want to add? Last, I, I think that one of the last things, and this is, a, a, I think, is uh, a gap, is conversations about those of us who are parents and raising children mm, yeah and i yeah. think and i think in the last gathering you wanted to include we, we were trying to include children but i think that, that i think that deserves its own conversation with other practitioners and theologians who are further ahead in this area but i i do feel that there is a gap and there is a certain sense of insecurity that some of us parents have about how to raise children who are generous in faith, but also not homophobic and, you know, patriarchal mm. or, you know, um, and so, but, and, and so it's like this, that's a whole other conversation.